You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com and be sure to share. The Second City is back open for live shows, classes, and customized corporate workshops and events. But we also have all those things available in virtual formats. For more information, go to secondcity.com. Second City is excited to work with Amazon as part of their new and exciting app called AMP. AMP is a home where anyone can create live radio-style shows alongside some of the biggest names in the entertainment industry, including ours. Join the Second City live every Thursday at 5 p.m. Central Time for our show, Second City Public Radio. SCPR is an interactive weekly lampoon of all things public radio. Each week, our host and an ever-expanding panel of Second City characters open up the lines to listeners from around the U.S. to ask questions and offer us opinions on a slew of wide-reaching subjects. Download the app, and don't forget to tune in, AMP. Thursdays at 5 p.m. Central Time. This was great fun. Uh, Michael Alsay is a clinical psychologist and mental health educator at Manhattan School of Music. His work has appeared in the Chicago Tribune, New York Times, NPR, and the TEDx stage. He has a podcast and blog for Psychology Today called Live Life Creatively. Uh, But the real kicker is this new book he has. It's called Therapeutic Improvisation, How to Stop Winging It and Own It as a Therapist. Yes, we talk about therapy and improv, and Michael's great. Enjoy the pod. The Second City is a world-famous comedy theater, and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance, and the same practices that made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Executive Director of Insights and Applied Improvisation at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, seeking connections, and finding a better way. This is Getting DS And. Days can be counted by the money you spend. Today was just another better left unsaid. Days can be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow's just another like the one that comes next. The corner of the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the boss with the elegant watch. The tick of the clock and the tick of the clock mark the moments till the ticking stops. Michael Alsay, welcome to the show. Delighted to be here, Kelly. So I'm curious, like I did not no, when I first started Second City, I didn't know they created the shows through improvisation. Um, but that doesn't mean I was not acquainted with improvisation because I was a deadhead and a huge jazz fan. And I wrote my college thesis on Jack Kerouac and the beat generation fo- and one entire chapter focused on spontaneous beat prosody. So basically improv writing. How, what was your, what was the doorway you walked through uh, in terms of improvisation? Yeah, the doorway was in college, I studied jazz piano, and I was terrible at it. But my teacher, was Andy Jaffe, was brilliant at it. And he could listen to a piece and tell you exactly what chords were going on. He can go right to the piano, and then he can noodle around with it. And and I thought, wow, that's phenomenal. Like, how does he do that? And just like you, I've always loved poetry. And, And Jack Kerouac is the greatest jazz writer in a lot of ways. And, and so there's something about that, that fascination with allowing yourself to trust the process and keep on noticing how everything's changing. And I never could do jazz improvisation as well as I wanted to. 
But it turns out that when I was talking to people in therapy-like settings, all of a sudden I could read the changes very quickly. Hmm. And I never thought that there was a connection between reading the changes in terms of music and reading the changes in terms of the psyche. Right, right. And then did you take any sort of theatrical improvisation or or did this is all sort of academic for you? No, it was all academic for me. But what I've noticed is in therapy, as you become a better therapist, you're leaning in so much more to all the great improv principles. Because once I started to throw away what I had to do and what I had to know and trusted in the process and also a lot more self-disclosure, what we say in the business, then all of a sudden things really hum, things really sing. And so all of a sudden you're like, Wow. I mean, I call therapy serious fun. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I, I adore my therapist. I at, I haven't seen her now for three weeks because of our schedules. Uh, I left her with your book because I had finished reading it. So I see her on Thursday and I'm, I'm very curious uh, uh, in terms of her response. Because of course, in the, in the year plus that I've been seeing her, I talk a lot about my work and and work in improvisation and, and, and she seems to like kind of understand how that enters that space. Because one of the things, and you talk about this in the book is like human beings are incredible storytellers and that we're machines. We're storytelling machines. Yeah. And that can be good, but it can also lead us astray. And part of what I work on with her, it was funny because my wife, before I started with this. This is my second therapist. My my wife said uh, to be careful uh, not to try to win at therapy <laughs> because because <laughs> I am you know I am a storyteller by nature and I have I have written stories that I thought were completely true and they turn out to be not true at all and mm-hmm. and that's that that seems to me to be one of the trickiest areas is because I don't I don't think I'm trying to deceive myself or others but but I am. I, I don't think individuals are always the best narrators of their own stories. Yeah. I mean, it's really interesting. I think one of the cool things about being both a patient and a therapist is that you're constantly toggling back and forth between telling and performing and executing, but also then deeply listening. And you see this a lot with improv actors yeah. and you see it a lot with improv jazz improv musicians. Like you, there's this wonderful picture of Coltrane and he looks like he's deep in meditation and behind him, he's listening to Miles Davis play and kind of blue. And, but you're thinking like the, the kind of the working, the paradox of being as deeply listening as you are deeply ready to play is the essence of improv, I think, and is the essence of jazz improv. But also, you know, funny thing is Freud actually gave very little direction to early therapists about what to do. Mm-hmm. But one of the biggest things he said was to have evenly hovering attention, which is such an important Zen-like listening. And then, of course, what is the complement of what the patient should do? Free association. So Freud really starts therapy, even as scientific as he is, on on a sort of jazz improv kind of footing. And to me, that's always kind of miraculous. Um, I know this from the work that we've done with, say, Nick Epley at the University of Chicago and scientists uh, around you know, our ability to, you know, read someone, which, which Nick says is, is not very good. Uh, and you talk about the micro expressions of patients and I'm quoting from the book, quote, a study found that these micro expressions only hang out for less than 500 milliseconds. I mean, it's crazy, right? That, that, that is, that, that seems like almost impossible, which is, which is why you need your patient 
to sort of free associate talk improvise? Well, the funny thing is so much of it happens non-verbally and so much of it is tapping into the feels, right? And and tapping into sort of that more right brain dreamlike, that's what improv is running on. Is yeah, that yeah. right brain dream like freewheeling, just instinct intuition? And I think the thing is, we t- we trust it as children. We lose contact with it in like you know, as we go to school, we lose contact with it. And then I think we need to reconnect to it. And the funny thing is, we are built as improvisation machines. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm the and here's the irony too. Like just like I'm more artistically oriented, but if you look at the data, there's interesting data that supposed super shrinks super shrinks are those who actually have outcomes that are 10 times better than their comparable therapist peers and why are they such amazing shrinks is because they have this capacity to be super responsive super able to quickly shift a mental or emotional set to really listen in and zoom in and zero on on what the issue is what the problem is what the possible solution is and they don't miss beats in fact, they might look like a different therapist from moment to moment or from session to session. And so the irony is that like, we think this is just something like, oh, this is a frill. This is about having fun. It's having fun, but it's extraordinarily efficient. And we're all built to do this. We're all built to kind of shift almost like, like you see in the book, I like to talk about we shift between these different selves, almost like like Pablo Neruda said in his poem, we are many, there are many different selves that we shift between and they're almost like different roles we bring to the table, but we don't necessarily notice it until we have anxiety or depression or some kind of stress or relationship issue. We're like, what's going on? Uh, when I, I forget who introduced me to the work of Irving Goffman, but th- that spoke to me so much because of his theatrical language of our onstage self, our backstage self, our offstage self. And, and in fact, we have, we have many selves, right? And so, so yeah. one of the, I, I certainly see this among uh, friends I've talked to is they're not acquainted with that idea. They, they, they still really cling to this idea of like, well, I have a, a, a true self. And it's like, I don't, I don't think so. I don't think so. Just count, count in your head how many times you've seen on the news somebody say, I don't know, he was a really quiet, like to himself guy. <laughs> yeah, I always go back to that SNL thing when Gumby like uh, assassinated someone. <laughs> I'm like, oh, you always seem like like a guy would do this. Um, you know, it's it's funny because that's what's so like it's so funny. Like Freud started and and he called it psychodynamics, and I think it's because the psyche is so dynamic. Mm-hmm. And um, speaking of acting and improv, like one of the things that I think is really interesting is that Robin Williams doesn't win an Academy Award for hardly any role except for one. And that's playing a therapist in Goodwill Hunting. Yeah. And I think the the really interesting thing that most people don't make the link of is because he's really showcasing how much improv goes on in therapy, mm-hmm. but yet how much improv is also trying to be blocked at every turn, often by most patients, including those like Will, played by Matt Damon, who has a trauma and he's trying to like push away Robin Williams from getting too close at every turn. But it's so funny to watch the, one of the greatest improv comedians of all time being stifled and doing his improv. Uh, you mentioned earlier uh, about kids and in, in the book, you talk about Susan Engel and, and her work in the hungry mind uh, that uh, about three and four year olds and found that children asked 26 questions per hour at home with their mothers, uh, 60% of which were aimed at learning something new and then they go to school and they do two questions an hour. 
Isn't that wild? It's like that's that. A, uh, that's a bad it, equation. It's a bad equation. It's like Sir Ken Robinson's TED Talk, right? Yeah, like right. how schools cr- kill creativity. And and this is one of the things that I think is the, the real shame of when we think about mental health in our country and throughout the world is that I think we limit mental health when we think more about, you know, diagnoses or symptoms or challenges or problems instead of looking at the rich, like, sort of way in which we're constructed, the rich possibilities that we have from the very start. And I think one of the things that improv comedians do is that they come back to really trusting and surrendering into that wisdom. I mean, the founder of Second City or like the person who inspired it, like from what I read, she really was in, into social work in the beginning. Yeah, you know? social work of Viola Spolin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and, and so what's fascinating to me is that like we as a society, as a culture, you know, sometimes I think because we're looking for the science of it or looking for the hard data on it, I think we forget that we're both scientists and artists. Like, right. and, and and even good improv folks are like scientific in how they can zero in and yet also then lean back into this dreamlike, wonderful place. And And I think one of the things is that we forget that good mental health is about learning how to live life creatively yeah. And and to really learn how to keep the play instinct alive. Uh, when we started our, our second science project at the University of Chicago, uh, uh, I co-led that with Heather Caruso. And Heather at the time had said to me, uh, like, just be prepared, Kelly. Like, people are going to be coming after you for this stuff. And and I was I didn't know what she meant until this year. And now I've got uh, a, a scientist coming here next week to observe a show and a workshop. I've got a call this afternoon with another one. And a guy from a University of uh, Pennsylvania just reached out to me who was also interested in, in doing studies. And I, I, I don't know exactly when the sort of shift happened, but it's clearly out there where people are recognizing that this practice, it's a practice. Um, and I think it, 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 I'm, I'm going to say, I think it's because it's an embodied practice. And yes. then everyone is understanding that more and more the, the way we in the West have t- taken the, the mind and the body apart yes. from each other. Would, yeah, right. That, that's the wrong, that's the wrong thing. And, and we have to sort of reintegrate if we're going to understand, you know, uh, and this is this is so rooted in positive psychology is is, is like no we got we got to look at what was the positive interaction here let's start from that point and we can figure out the other stuff later well you know it's so funny i i would call it like based on what you're saying too it's an embodied mindfulness or a mindful yeah. embodiment yeah and I, I you know in the book you know i i quote the picture of vitruvian man of da vinci you know where da vinci's in man, vitruvian man is in the square in the circle because the the square is logic it's very kind of linear and box-like, but the circle, the dynamic process is emotion. And we are square pegs in a round hole, but we have to kind of have the yin-yang kind of complementarity of that. And I think you're right. I think one of the interesting things that's that's really spurred this on has been work like Daniel Pink, yeah, um, yeah. writing a whole, a whole new mind, mm-hmm. and even a lot of like Adam Grant's work. And, you know, a lot of the new startup people, I think the way that they're kind of blending the professional with the personal and, and seeing how aesthetic creativity, you know, we, we've reached the max of efficiency left brain wise. Yeah, In fact, yeah. AI is sort of taking over. So we're like, wait, what makes us human? Right. And this is it. 
I think that the all the Stanford design thinking people as well, they all take improvisation. They have that that's sort of built into curriculums uh, there. So I think you get you it's it's coming in from uh, multiple angles. Um, my friend Scott Barry Kaufman introduced me to Irving Elam. Uh, yes. Who's amazing work. I mean, just powerful. So you had an interaction uh, yeah. with with him. Can you tell us about that? So it's so funny. I was like in the, like the 40th row with thousands of people at the psychotherapy networker conference, which is just a great place. And they were giving Irvin Yalom a lifetime achievement award because he's written so many amazing books, m- novels, um, you know, scholarly works on groups. And just, he's been the, like the most confessional psychotherapist, poet and storyteller that we've got. And I basically like thanked him in front of everybody for teaching us all how to be artists. And he looked at me like, uh, I'm not an artist. Uh-huh. And I was like, oh, Houston, we have a problem. <laughs> if Irvin Yalom doesn't consider himself an artist, how are any of us as therapists, psychologists, social workers, counselors, you name it, how are we going to fully embrace this? And this is one of the things that I also think is really a shame. You know, like Pablo Picasso said, we all start out as artists, but all children start out as artists, but they forget as they grow up. Yeah. And the other funny thing is that therapists don't realize that they are artists too. We are a combination of actors mm-hmm. kind of trying to get into the role of, of our patients, but also ourselves. We're musicians really listening to chord changes happening in the psyche and, and being able to then repeat it back and then vary it. We're storytellers, as you know, and poets trying to find the revelatory turn of the poem. And And it's so much of what happens in the therapy room is a piece of art. We are conductors. Like I say, we're conducting and noticing which sections of the orchestra need to play more and which need to quiet down. And I think, you know, that combination of seeing ourselves as artists will really enhance the field. And then I think also people seeing themselves as more artistically capable, because I think people think of creativity and they think artistic creativity. Okay, I'm not a painter. I'm not a dancer. I have no creativity in my bones. But they don't realize we're all built with personal creativity. Right. And every part of creativity that comes from anywhere else comes from that source. And and that's how I define mental health. That's right. I mean, we're we're not handed scripts. Like, I mean, for some stuff, but not the majority of it. And so you're, I I always, when people say they're bad improvisers, I always laugh at that. I'm like, I see, we're having a conversation right now (laughs) and it's it's impossible not to improvise. Yes. It's impossible not to. And, and, and indeed there are, there are people who struggle with it for, for, for whatever reasons. I was curious. I want to talk about right brain, left brain. And and here's, you talk about this a lot in the book. For, For me, I remember as a young person, probably college, reading into right what what we thought was right brain left brain and then and then i moved away like i was you know system one system two with kahneman yeah, and then some, some sure. of the neuroscience so sort of reacquaint us with how you bring in right brain left brain in particular the the uh, the thing that you note from mcgillchrist is this near universal tendency for babies to cradle on the left side so that the right brain can emotionally tune in Isn't that wild That's wild that yeah. i never knew that that's no. stunned me and so the, the, see, the right brain, the right brain sections are connected more to nonverbal stuff, to mm-hmm. metaphor, to mm-hmm. image, um, and to prosody, right? Which is tone, which is why poems also are beautiful, 
because it's not just the words themselves, it's the tones and the connotations and the associations. And so it's all the dreamlike associations come from that. Mm-hmm. And that's more of the right brain, whereas the left brain, and the, by the way, you know the other thing that the right brain loves, according mm-hmm. to McGillchrist? Novelty. Okay. It, courts craves it it's like and remember when we're children we're always looking for novelty we're delighted by novelty. we're only taught that too much novelty isn't a good thing right mm-hmm. and that's why i think it's really like what you said with susan Engel's quote we stop asking the questions because we're taught that they're irrelevant or or less important or actually taking us off the wrong path whereas um susan uh, ellen langer the great harvard psychologist who, who talks a lot about mindful creativity she says, instead of thinking that you're distracted, say I'm otherwise attracted. Hmm. And, and so you're right. And so but the left brain is linear logical. It likes to have sequence. And in fact, it so likes to know what's going on that let's say if you cut off the visual field, like you have a lesion or tumor in, in the side of the visual field, the, the, the left brain will say, no, that, that whole field division doesn't exist. That whole part of the world doesn't exist. That's how much it hates novelty. But it's really good at being discriminating. And also the other thing is, even though the right brain has some language capacity, the left brain is much better at at being able to, to express it. And so it is the spokesperson. But as McGilchrist says, it, it's, it's the emissary, not the master. But you're right, in Western culture, we've made it the master. So I'm having on the podcast in a couple of weeks, Patrick House, who has a book on consciousness. Mm-hmm. He's a neuroscientist. V- very, probably the most difficult book I've, I've read in, in a few years. And it, because yeah. it's not, not my, my area, but the running theme through this is a study. I, I think they, they were doing a, um, a brain surgery on uh, a young woman named Anna Kay. And do you, do you know about the study where they, no, they, tell me. So uh, she had seizures. So they were working on getting, trying to get rid of whatever parts, you know, I'm already struggling yeah. to, to describe. They were trying anyway. to get yeah, away from the parts that were lighting up so much and, and yep, causing yep. seizures. So they clip her corpus callosum. So I'm not sure, but what happened was they accidentally hit another part of the brain and she laughed. Ah. And every time they did it, she gave a different reason. Yes. And so that seems to be also connected here where it's just like, oh, we are, we really want to have a reason why we laughed and, and, and maybe there wasn't one. Yeah. So it's almost like, think of it like this, because I know you like poetry as well. It's like John Keats' negative capability, Mm. right? Negative capability is sort of the ability to tolerate and actually like ambiguity and enjoy the mystery. And the right brain is much more open to that. Whereas the left brain likes certainty and more, you know, clarity and yeah. sharpness. And so it will make up something and confabulate, right? To have a sense of eye of control. And, and so there's this side that left brain side likes to be in control and the right brain side is okay with being surrendered, but they have to work together. And McGilchrist even says like half of human history is trying to figure out how these things work and antagonize, but also complement each other. And interestingly enough, you know, in the history of psychotherapy, we always go back between, am I going to be more like Rogerian, Carl Rogers or Fred Rogers and really just listen and let things right. process? Or am I going to be cognitive behavioral and very directive or behavioral, right? And now we're trying, we're seeing more of even therapies noticing to blend them and that feelings have their own reason and reason have their own feeling. 
I think it's interesting because clearly when sort of humanistic psychology, Carl Rogers and that, that got picked up in the sixties and became a bunch of self-help. And yeah. then so, so it didn't root. And then now you have positive psychology where they, they really are like strongly evidence-based. Um, yeah. But it's all coming from the, the same pay, place, which is, here's what I think is fascinating, which yeah. is we're talking about this, this almost this fight that is going on inside our singular human selves and it is exactly mirrored in what is going on in society right now. It always is. And that's, always the, is. you know, that's the funny thing too. So like, I think Rumi was right about like being in a guest house. Like we always have these different sides of selves and there's always these disruptors. And instead of just saying, oh, this is bad, be like curious about what they might teach us or what might new might happen. The other thing too, that you see with politics and polarization is a desire to feel perfectionistically clear on one side and getting intolerant of dissonance or intolerant of compromise or noticing other sides of self, which is actually what happens with trauma. It dissociates us and says, no, this side is the one that I have to use. And this side is strong and this side is weak. And so what polarization does is it actually cuts off our inner diversity Hmm. And, you know, and so, you know, because here's the funny thing, like, I think I write about the book a lot is that we start as polyphonic creatures, right? Like these different voices, like a Bach fugue that interlace, but, you know, they can also be really difficult. The fugue is like the voices are like escaping. Yeah. But we developed from polyphonic music to be kind of monophonic where we're the virtuoso with a main line. And we still like to think we've gotten through the polyphonic and that's, oh, that's just the regressive stuff. But in fact, it's about the balancing out between polyphonic and monophonic, the being a virtuoso, but also being able to notice the diversity that is really when you're cooking, which is, you know, as I was watching, um, Stephen Colbert was talking about like his favorite second, second city memory. Mm-hmm. And I was noticing that he, he said one of the big themes of his favorite memory is when you're doing a bit and you don't know who started it, who's leading it. And who's doing it, like who's following. And then all of a sudden this magic happens and you're both kind of like in it and surrendering to it. And you're making something completely original that you didn't expect to happen. And I think there's, there's something about that. That's really, really magical that we lose touch with, but. Yeah. I mean, when you, when you work here, especially if you're like Steven and you end up in one of the resident ensembles, for like, let's say a two or three year period, you're basically a professional, uh, mistake enjoyer. <laughs> you, yeah. you are, you, I mean, you have to, it, it is, it is the majority of the, the work is going to be a mistake. And by the way, this is true with all of us. We just don't, we just don't think. publicize it. Right. Yeah. We don't publicize it. Cause we think we're going to get fired and we might. Um, <laughs> but, but the, but the reality is like when, when you're on stage, you're doing it. So, so the, the magic that you're talking about is, turning that mistake into an opportunity and so you know we talked earlier about these various behavioral scientists who are all coming here and it's like oh we're navigating ambiguity we're trafficking in both and thinking we are i mean and that that is a kind of superpower especially as we look forward to the sort of ai enabled future what are the jobs going to be yeah yeah, I mean, exactly. And you know what's so funny, Kelly? Um, here's an interesting stat. You ready? Yep. In attachment. So if you're a securely attached kid, it means you have a good enough mother or father or good enough caretaker, right? 
Securely attached kids have, let's say, mothers who 50% of the time miss the signal. Hmm. 50% of the time. So that means half the time they're screwing up. But the difference is they're all about figuring out how to repair and make something out of that mistake. The other thing that's not common knowledge is good therapists are professional mistake makers too. And we wow. delight in it. Like, give me, give me an example. Yeah. So <clears throat> I had this session where I'm working with a guy who's in his mid twenties. He is, his family are all engineers. His father's an engineer. His mother's an engineer. And so whenever he talks about deeper issues, like his relationships, especially like with this new, this girlfriend that he'd been going out for a long time with, and they broke up and he's every time he talks about it or anything else for that matter, they try and fix it like mm-hmm. a good engineer would. And in fact, they take it metaphorically to another side road because his mother, in addition to being an engineer, was a little bit overprotectively neurotic. Right. And so her anxiety would lead the conversation and he'd feel like the whole conversation was co-opted. So we're making these connections and now he's feeling comfortable with me because he has someone who really stays with him and follows his lead. But all of a sudden, my cell phone goes off and I got a message from somebody. Could you please take that off LinkedIn? I don't want that posted yet from a colleague. Mm-hmm. And I lose my attention. And I figure I'm a good ex-NAL. I can hack this. No problem. Yeah. Yeah. And I do it. And then all of a sudden, in the moment, I see several different chord changes happen right there. Yeah. First, I see confusion. Then I see disappointment, sadness. And then the stealing up of, oh, if you have to go, it's okay. We can talk later. Right. But the interesting thing, instead of pretending that mistake didn't happen, I used it and said, hey, you know, I I confessed what I did, but then I used it to talk about every sequence of emotions that we had experienced in the moment together that we could figure out of what must have happened throughout his whole life. And in that two minutes of therapy, we did more than in five weeks. Wow. Yeah. I, I, when, so when COVID hit and we all went home and then slowly second city was shrinking, right? So 800 Mm -hmm. employees and, and we're at a point I remember where it was 38 and, uh, um, we were in the process of being sold and it was just, and I was talking to, um, essentially the person in charge at, at that time. Yeah. And hadn't, hadn't seen anyone in person. I, I was working on stuff and actually the, our, our division in the sort of corporate area, I was delivering a bunch of keynotes. I was actually really busy and, 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 and doing work and we were making money, all that stuff. But secretly, because I didn't really tell anyone this, it's like, I was, I thought I was going to get fired. And mm-hmm. so I'm talking to, and I finally confessed this to the person who was essentially in charge. And they laughed and they said, just so you know, we had a meeting and you're going to be the last, you're the last employee. Like (laughs) you're the last one to get fired. Right. Right. And and, and I I was like, okay, so if I'm feeling that, and, and of, and of course that was going to be true at that point, because no one had the level of experience I had to, to do both business and art and all that stuff. Right. If I'm feeling that, what are other people feeling? Oh my gosh. Yeah. And it was really eye opening. And, and and what I ended up doing with that information was talking to people and sharing that to be like, I think you probably feel feel this. Know that I feel it too, and 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 we don't need to linger there. So I guess my point of all this is like, I, I think we need to understand. People need to understand how overwhelming these forces are in in our brains and our bodies, 
Yeah. And it's not, and this thing, this thing that you do and that I do and that we do is not easy. It's really, really hard. Yeah. And the other thing is, I think, you know, I once had this funny event where like, I think you're right that we all pick up on it, whether or not we don't have to be psychologists or social workers or anything at all. And I think what you're talking about is being tuned in and yeah. trusting what we're tuned into and also mining that. Like, see, so what you did there is you said, wait a minute, this is affecting me and given where I'm at. Gosh, now it gives you so much more what I call empathic imagination. Mm. And I think, I think that's what improv runs on too, is empathic imagination. Yeah. You're really following and you're really trying to let go to tune into that more right brain. I'm just going to connect. And then I'm going to see if I can contribute and let's see if that person on the other side can empathize deeply with me and take that. And so there was a great um, psychoanalyst and pediatrician named Donald Winnicott, who we know from like transitional object, like the teddy bear is a transitional object. Mm -hmm. And he, he worked with children and his, he said the goal of therapy is to teach children how to play, to remind them how to play. And if they've forgotten to help them remember. And he would do this lovely game with kids where he'd do a squiggle and he'd say, this is, I made a ball. And then they'd make another squiggle and they make it something else. It was essentially a picture improv game. Yeah. And essentially that's what we're doing, especially when we're tuning in underground. And I think sometimes we don't, we mistrust our own signals. And I think sometimes we don't realize how much more data is there, if you will. Right. We don't right. see it as hard data. Right. You know, we, we don't privilege it. And I think be, being a good actor, being a good musician, being a good therapist, you start to really trust that, but see the, the real depth of it. And, and you get delighted. You like courting what else you can find, Right. It's interesting as we're having this conversation because um, I, I over-prepare everything. So I've got four <laughs> pages of notes with a bunch of quotes. Of, uh, Me different too. Things Me that, too. That I got I, mine. I, I want to talk about. Uh, and yet, because of what we're talking about, I am like, I, I'm so tuned in because I feel like have to be. Yeah. That I want to ignore and I'm going to the notes because because I think what we're Let's just talk about presence for a bit. Yeah. So, so one of the things, basically the first thing that we're teaching level A improv are exercises to get you out of your self-judgment and judgment of others brain. Yep. That's almost exclusive. If we, if we can get you better, let's just start there. Cause it, you know, who knows how far you go. Uh, that is going to make a giant difference in your ability to move towards what my friend Heather Crusoe says is wise improvisation. Yeah. So, so we just need like, like to reset the, the baseline. And so for, for you, when you're in a session with a client, what does presence look and feel like? Because you, you probably take yeah. notes. I used to, you don't know. I, I used to be an obsessive note taker. Cause I, I think through the word and I think through writing Yep. And it's funny, Freud in his earliest directive said not to take notes. And I was like, wow, how do you do that? And so it's actually, you allow yourself, I allow myself to dream a little bit more. I allow myself to actually let my eyes roll to one side and, and you're actually practicing reverie. And, say, and say more about, say more about reverie. 
So reverie is allowing yourself to be like, you know how like when, when there's a wonderful turn of a poem and all of a sudden at the end of the poem, something just new comes out. Like, you know, Emily Dickinson's The Truth Must Dazzle Gradually or Every Man Be Blind, right? Like she starts it with to tell, tell the truth, tell all the truth, but tell it slant. And then that thing just pops out. It pops out indirectly. It always pops out on the side. So allowing yourself to have that reverie and not feel as tied in really, really helps. The other thing is it helps to recognize, and this is a, a math metaphor, but that people are like fractals. They always repeat and so you don't have to worry if you missed it once, it's going to come back very quickly. Oh, that's interesting. And so if you trust in that principle all the time, and then I, I always joke about this. I mean, I, I didn't realize I was doing it until I'm talking to you about it. I often notice at the start of a session that something at the end of the session is a callback joke. There's always a yeah, callback yeah, joke yeah, in a yeah. session. Totally. And there's always a way. And so that helps you trust that no matter I don't need to do it. I don't need to worry. I need to immerse. And, but then inside your head, you're constantly going back and forth between, wait, what am I, what am I, what am I interested in here? What am I intrigued by? What's sticking out to me? So two things I thought of first was nobody, not even the rain has such small hands. E Cummings. That's the, love it. Yeah. And I, the reason I hooked in on reverie is I produced a show for the, French side of the Just for Last Festival is years ago called Reverie. And the show was, um, we wanted to create something with no language, mm. no spoken words. Right. Uh, and, uh, I, I, and the show actually got very good reviews. We, we didn't end up doing more with it, unfortunately, but it was for, for, I think for the artists and myself, it was a really wonderful way to sort of realize there's so many other ways that we are we can communicate or how we communicate uh, and and it and the, and the show was very noisy you know it wasn't it wasn't silent everyone's like was that mean silent like no it's it's it yeah. no it doesn't need to be um and I, I i guess i sort of going back to the music metaphors that we've used you know we talk in and when i'm talking about comedy improvisation then cre- creating comedy rhythm is is such a big thing in in comedy in terms of like the number of words the rule of three yeah. there's all the, this, yeah. the you know that turns into math or, or whatever um but i from my own th- therapy sessions like the best sessions feel like we finished writing the song at the end yeah it's totally that and the funny thing is the best sessions often start i don't know what i'm going to talk about today Oh, I do uh, that all the time now. All the time. I, mean, I, I have no I idea. I come in with notes, but I, but, I, but I don't know. Those in notes fact, are just like, yeah. In fact, I don't think I really have anything going on this week. That's the best. <laughs> See, that's the best. It's like the palate is cleansed for, for that free associative thing to happen. And you're right. I mean, I have this jazz musician who once said to me, you know, it's a darn shame. Like, I mean, we are taught how to read the changes of things, but it's a shame that people aren't taught this too, mm. because it's the tune we all have to play. Mm-hmm. And so I think you're right. And and it is this interesting thing that people are surprised by. Because like, you know, people come into therapy thinking, oh my gosh, this has got to be hard work, or this has to be like more regimented, or I have to be obliged to bring this in. Yeah. And it's actually really, really learning how to improv more effectively mm-hmm. with each other, but with yourself. 
that's the other thing I think people forget. We're improving with ourselves all the time. And yeah. do you recognize which inner side is coming out now that you're improving with? And, and and like you said, like, you know, it's all about yes. And if you say no, but, or yes, mm-hmm. but that side is going to get worse. And then yeah, what yeah. that side does is it tends to throw things at you and rebel with symptoms, anxiety, depression, stress, you name it. And so the irony is the more that you avoid improv, the more you avoid your own natural flow. And I think a common mistake around people who don't understand improvisation is thinking that it is, you guys are just all making it up. And it's yeah. like, well, yeah, but there is, I mean, beyond the practice and the training, which is hugely important because you get rusty like it, like anything. Yeah. There's all these effing rules, uh, and and they can be broken. That's fine, but it's like we need all we need this box. <laughs> we all recognize we're we're in a variety of these different boxes. We have to understand that environment because the minute the context cha- changes, we need to change. Um, yeah. And that is also, I think, societally uh, an issue we have is is this. The search for one truth, yeah. one reality, you know, like I have to be one person at work and one person at home instead of I can't be multiple people in both places because because of course you are going to be. Um, it, it's just it's just like it, it is. It feels like the brain fighting with uh, the the greater truth of what it means to be a human. Yeah. You know, it's so funny because I was reading I have it here. Um Wendy Smith's book, right? Wendy oh, she's, she's one of the, she's coming in next week. She's the one yes. uh, watching the, watching the show. She's amazing. And, and, you know, her and Marianne Lewis have this wonderful book about both end thinking. And I think what's great about it is that you're seeing how they're like bringing this to business, Yeah, you know, and how the thing is we, we actually see zero sum games where there don't need to be right. in all sorts of ways. And the funny thing is like, the like one of the, one of my favorite neuro neuroscientists is Oliver Sacks. Yeah, sure. Because Oliver Sacks found a way to be so steeped in the chemistry and physiology and neurology of stuff, but he was so equally well versed in story and psychology and identity, and also because of his own personal experience. Right, like he he was one of those kids who during the Blitz of London was like taken away from his family. Yeah. So he was always sensitized to what it's like to feel separated from yourself. And I, you know, and like Antonio Damasio is another neuroscientist who brings in feeling and and talking about the importance of feeling. I think we're seeing in business and the culture much more of a healthier integration of this stuff. But I think we're just catching up with ourselves. I think this is something we've always wrestled with, but we forget. You all, and and I think the pandemic is a good a good reason that that everyone sort of ha- had to shift. And what what's interesting to me now is the people who are trying to shift back and just knowing that ain't going to work. You, the genie is out of the bottle here. Like you 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 can try to do this. It, uh, and what's also fascinating is how the military was ahead of uh, us on this stuff. I mean, they they have been working with positive psychologists for a decade yeah. be- because the minute that they had to deal with terrorism. It, it's 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 distributed networks top it down doesn't work game. And, and what was more top down than the military that's fascinating that's but it's fascinating. like but it's life and death so like you you got to do that pivot this is the, the other reason that i think the the group that maybe is a little late to this well they're definitely late to it is is hospitals doctors 
health yeah, systems. Although, although one thing that you're seeing is narrative medicine is, is coming yes. into focus. And I'm also intrigued by like, so I'm, I have a four-year-old son. And so I'm intrigued about how improv, you know, we're always doing improv and learning improv for having children. Yep, right. Yep. And um, I'm reading, I just read this great book called Brain Body Parenting by Mona Della Hook. And it's all about like the neurology of how we're built. And it's based on like polyvagal theory, which is basically looking at, you know, our autonomic nervous system and how that's built to be reactive to fight flight, but also the calm curiosity that you feel when you're in flow. Yeah. Right. And then like the shutting down when you go into like dissociation and she's looking at parenting from a whole new frame, which is learning how to read those signals biologically and psychologically with a really strong, you know, like, like scientific connection there. But basically I think what she's showing us, it's not really about responding to behavior. It's about responding to what's going on inside Mm. and learning how to read that and to respond to that in an individual way. Uh, My friend Liz joint Sandberg, who I adore, she's a wonderful teacher and artist. Uh, during the pandemic, I was working closely with her and she had, she was talking about a stand-up set she had where she started to get heckled <laughs> and she just, she started to get mad yeah. and then she just decided to dial up her curiosity and just like, what's making you say this? What was, and, and it completely caught this person, you know, off guard and they actually ended up, it became a funny bit and then she moved on with her, her work. But I think that that ability to take a beat two or three yeah. And and know that there's something deeper or different going on is not just good improvisation. That's where all the good comedy comes from. If you if you think about really good comedy, it's that surprise element of like, oh, you thought you were talking about this, but we're really talking about that. It's always that. I mean, Robert Frost said that about poetry. Metaphor allows us to say one thing and mean another. Yeah. And yeah. comedy does that through the trickster. Yeah. And I love that example too, because there was this one example with Sarah Silverman. Um, where someone heckled her online because of some you know political statement she put out there. And he was totally trolling her. Mm-hmm. And she did exactly what you're saying is like, I know that there's more going on here. And the guy eventually talked about how he was suffering. He had back pain. He, he was feeling totally demoralized. And, and they developed a connection and she set up a fund for him to pay for his yeah. bills. Yeah. And there's just something so beautiful about that, but it takes a sort of letting go temporarily, but then responding back and engaging deeply. That my I had a podcast taping yesterday, uh, and the author I was talking to, this is after we hung up, after we stopped taping, we just kept talking. Uh, and <laughs> she talked out, she was on a flight, and the guy next to her was watching Tucker Carlson. Hmm. And she sort of made this decision of like, I am going to see what happens if I can connect with this guy. And he was a big yeah. gun rights guy. And they, they started to have a good conversation and they found points of agreement and points of difference. But as she, as he started to reveal more and more of himself, uh, her, his son had actually committed suicide and shot himself. Wow. And that she said that she just turns like this. He is in such pain and he doesn't, he doesn't go to therapy he doesn't talk about it. It is like maybe the first time he revealed it to like a stranger ever. And it was just, it was just like everything changed in that moment. And again, I don't, I'm, I'm not trying to like, you know, um, 
woo everyone hold hands and 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 also not acknowledge for the systemic issues and trump racism all all that exists and it's real but there's also a lot of just hurt human beings out there who uh, who their behaviors are really informed by a lack of care yeah i mean i wrote this in the book uh i really think their greatest prescription is to follow the hurt not the hate the Mm -hmm. hate really tries to seduce us into you know, perfectionistic grandstanding and, you know, either I'm the victim, you know, and you're the ultimate victimizer and I'm the ultimate victim. And to be a divine victim or a divine victimizer is not a fun role. And it's not really very complex. Right. And, and so, you know, there's many shades of gray with this, but I think the hurt is always the entry point because often this stuff, this, this stuff, when we are polarized it means we're over connecting with one side at the expense of another, which is a form of dissociation. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. And it's not easy to be in touch with all these sides because they rub up against each other. And, you know, like while women said, do I contradict myself very well then? I'm large, I contain multitudes. But who else but Walt Whitman can contain multitudes? Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> He's a colossus, the colossus who could, but it's really not easy. No. to do and it really takes a lot of practice just like a good improv or well, that, and ultimately there there's the problem which is that we don't have this side is not practiced and it's funny because you know speaking of parenting and teaching like you had another guest who i i know well clay drinko who yeah, wrote yeah. this wonderful book about you know his background in improv comedy and he has this wonderful book about you know using that for you know playing your way back to sanity mm-hmm. and we're tinkering together on possibly writing a book about improvisational parenting yeah. because we just really think that we do it. We all do it. We all do it in everything. That is the, that is the core. I mean, my, I'm, I'm married to an improv expert and, and our, our kid, both of our kids were raised completely improvisationally and they became incredible storytellers, uh, empathetic uh, creatures. Um, and again, nothing perfect. Like, like, no, decidedly decidedly not um but that's good we need our stories exactly but but you know authentic and honest and i remember my son coming home from college and being like everyone hates their parents this is the weird <laughs> like i don't and i'm like oh buddy what's wrong with me uh, how yeah, come i'm not sorry, a philip larkin poem i'm so, sorry maybe you won't be the great artist all right i could talk to you for all day but we don't we, we don't have that amount of time um we always end the podcast with a yes and story do you have yes. one for us Yeah. So when I was about to turn 40, I was at a job and I was trying to innovate and it wasn't really appreciated. (laughs) And (laughs) they decided that why don't we part ways? And they gave me a nice, a little severance. And I was about to have, I just bought a house with my wife. We were just about to have our son in January. And I was like, instead of saying, what am I doing here? I had to go. Yes. And, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and I went to a U2 concert that night and it was the re- replaying of the Joshua Tree. And every song that Bono sang became my yes and. Okay, okay. I can't live with or without you. Mm-hmm. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And then in the name of love. And I'm like, wait. And so that's when I started like not only building the private practice, but I started writing again just for fun. Mm-hmm. And then this job opened up at Manhattan School of Music, which was just godsend. And I trusted just following this stuff. And instead of saying, I need an organization to keep me secure... This is what I love about improv. improv. Improv catches you and propels you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And what I thought was going to be the worst year of my life became the best year of my life. 
because I really embraced the improv. I was forced there, but I'm glad that I got it. Yeah, I feel the same way. It's funny. My, uh, my son and I had dinner last night with my brother and his family. Um, my wife was teaching here. Uh, and he, he's trying to figure out his, he wants to be an actor. He's actually very good, but there's not a lot of jobs. And he's got this tech recruiting job right now. And sort of struggling with where, where he's at with it. And I, I said to him, I go, the only advice I can give you is if I look back at my career and I'm very happy that I was able to stay here and do, do all these things. But, but also what happened to me, whether I liked it or not, I was constantly disrupted. I had a boss for the most part who'd be like, all right, you're really good at this. Stop doing it. And now you've got to do this other thing. Mm-hmm. And it, it was hard, but I realized uh, also it, 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 flex something in me made made me sort of more resilient more agile and very few people get to do that and stay in the same place and that probably will not happen anymore for a lot of people and so i sort of said to nick i go you can take a chance like 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 you are young enough and like we still live down the street like if you needed to come come you're here, gonna be okay it's you're learning gonna how be to, okay like learn like, how to pivot off of take this the ch- take the chance and and don't play it safe um, and I hope that's good advice. I think, I think it is. And I think especially as a, as a young person, and you'll see this as your child grows up, cause there's no manual for parenting an adult. There's plenty of books to read about uh, yeah, you know, yeah. when they're young and, and it's a whole different thing as they're an adult. And so it's just really for me. And I talk about this with my wife all the time. It's like, what, what nudges or, or, or advice. And some of that advice is just like, you got a safety net, use it. If you need to. And you've got an individual idiom and voice and style that only you are going to figure out how to develop. And I trust and honor that. Yeah, that's right. And you talk about that in the book, this, this idea of your, your voice, your voice as a therapist, but your voice having, as a person, as a person. Yeah, yeah. Hugely important. Just like every artist has a voice. That's just their signature. It's no different. Yep. The book is called therapeutic improvisation, how to stop winging it and own it as a therapist. Michael, I'll say, thank you for coming on the pod. Thanks for having me, Kelly. Getting to Yes And podcast is produced by The Second City and WGN Radio. We are supported at The Second City by Mike Farinaccio and Colleen Fahey. Our show is produced by Andrew Harris at WGN. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of the podcast is by Jukebox the Ghost. If you're interested in knowing more about The Second City, you can log on to secondcity.com or email us at works at secondcity.com.
adulthood, no one survives.